The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Amen. My oldest sister was born the weekend that daylight saving time ended. But it was back in the days before anybody had clocks that were set by satellite. So for as long as I can remember, it was always my father's job to remind the people in our little country church to set their clocks back. And for literally probably 25 years or more, there was a running joke every year that he had to remind everyone to set the clocks back because on the weekend that he first became a father, he was so disoriented that he set his clock forward and arrived to church that Sunday two hours early wondering if the rapture had happened without him. Baptist jokes, you guys, somebody got that, all right. <laughs> Understanding what time it is, is very important in our day-to-day -day lives. Whether it's figuring out how to avoid bad traffic on the 405, making it through the security line at the airport, keeping appointments or getting to work on time, we all have to read time and the meaning of time, almost constantly. And in some ways, time can become an obsession for us, and here's where I think our children can teach us something important. Yesterday, we took our girls to get a Christmas tree, and when I told Nori, our three-year-old, that we were going to get a Christmas tree, her face lit up and she exclaimed, because today is Christmas Day! 
And then when I explained to her that no, it's not, she burst into tears. I still need to work on tactfully explaining things. Nori, as a three-year-old, does not have a grasp on how time passes. Me telling her that it's still weeks away is basically meaningless. I mean, when we tell her that her grandparents are coming over but won't be there for about eight hours, she still runs immediately to the couch to stand up on it and look out the window and expectantly wait for them to arrive. In our gospel lesson this evening, Jesus is telling his followers how to read time eschatologically, how to discern when the end is coming and when it will be here soon, much like a farmer who would see the budding of the fig tree and understand that summer is beginning. There's a lesson there that it's often subtle and yet explosive at the same time. But Jesus also tells them that about the day or the hour of his appearing, no one knows the specifics, only the Father. The command is, therefore, not to obsess over time itself, but to keep watch. This idea of watchfulness really gets at what we mean when we say around here that we are eschatological people. It's an expectancy that is imbued with hope and joy. And it's a hope and joy that do not dissipate based on present circumstances because they are hope and joy that are not found within our present circumstances. They are, as J.R.R. Tolkien says, beyond the walls of the world. It's a joy that exists outside of this particular place. I think to keep watch in this way is expressed beautifully in the film adaptation of Tolkien's book, The Two Towers. You guys all know the scene. One of the cities of men, nerds out there can tell me which one, I don't remember, has been overtaken, and the people go to take refuge in Helm's Deep, right? You guys with me? Okay. There they are in Helm's Deep, only to find themselves what? Besieged by orcs with no way out. They are about ready to be breached and overrun. But just as the darkness seems to be the strongest, Aragorn remembers the words of Gandalf. Look to my coming, he says. At first light on the fifth day, at dawn, look to the east. And just as Helm's Deep is breached, Gandalf appears on the hillside in blinding light, surrounded by an army. Do you guys remember this scene? He's galloping down the hill. But it's the expectant watchfulness that causes Aragorn to go out into the darkness, into the battle, rather than simply sit around and wait. Of course, as we've said, we're not given a particular day and time like Gandalf gave to Aragorn, we are simply told to watch. Sadly, there are dozens of, of examples of those who have failed to heed this word from Christ and instead have obsessed themselves with the exact time and place of his return. I have to confess, I, I hopped on Wikipedia to try to find a list, and it's so enormous of people who have said, he's coming back in this place at this time on this day that I couldn't even pick even though there's some really, really, there's some doozies out there. The point is not to keep obsessing and pulling out charts and graphs and wondering when is he going to come. It's to keep expectantly waiting and watching for his return. Christ's reference to Noah here isn't to suggest that getting married or starting a family or having a career are somehow bad things. No. 
the joyful expectancy of eschatological people is not license to live as if tomorrow is not happening. Right? You guys have heard the old Christian school joke, oh, teacher, I didn't do my homework. An angel appeared to me and told me the Lord was returning. Okay? This is not what he's talking about. Am I the only one who spent time in, in terrible places? Okay. All right. That's fine. After all, Noah himself and his children all were married, all had families, all spent time building a life. But the key is that they also tended to the ark. The Apostle Peter, in one of his letters to the early church, alludes to the ark as a picture of baptism. The idea is that, yes, you pay your mortgage, you buy food for the week, you marry and have children if those gifts are to be given to you, but all of these things should be arenas for you to attend to your baptism to attend to your baptism, to the sacramental life that you have been given in Christ and the vows that you took in committing yourself to follow him. And this is where Paul's letter to the Romans becomes so instructive to us in our New Testament lesson for this first Sunday in Advent. Because rather than allowing us to obsess over the when, where, and how of Jesus' return, Paul simply tells us that it's nearer now than it was when we first believed. That's the only thing we can know for sure. And notice that for Paul, salvation is eschatological in this sense and is tied up. Your salvation is tied up with the return of King Jesus. The obsession should not be to figure out the exact time, but rather to wake up and live as if the day really is approaching, as if the dawn truly is drawing near. Or to put it another way, in the words of Paul in this passage, it is to clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. This, too, is a reference to baptism. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So to clothe yourselves with Christ here is an allusion to entering into a covenant with the living God and into his church through baptism. The season of Advent that we are beginning this evening is one of hopeful and joyful expectation. But that hope and that joy are rooted in baptism where we are clothed with Christ himself and made alive together with him. And because of that, Advent is more than just a season of expecting. It is also a season of inspecting. It is a time for us to inspect our own lives. And with this inspection, I envision there are really only two main groups. There are those that are unbaptized. And to you, our message is always the same. Christ has died that you might live. He, the perfect Son of God, has taken on your sin and punishment that you might be presented to God dressed in his perfect righteousness. We believe that this is a gift that God offers to all people and that through faith, through trusting that what God says is true, that your debt has been paid in Christ, sacrificial death on the cross, it's in faith in that that you will find salvation, that you will be saved. And we believe that that faith is strengthened and revealed and sealed in the sacraments that Christ instituted in his church baptism, 
and the Eucharist. So if you've not yet been baptized, but you trust that Jesus has paid all that you owe, then I encourage you, come and talk with me. If you're a child still at home and you have not been baptized, talk with your parents. Ask them about what it means. Ask them about how it symbolizes your decision to follow Christ and his seal with you as a covenant member of his family. And then don't delay. Come and put on Christ in the waters of baptism. The other group that also needs to give inspection to their lives is those that have been baptized. And to you I say, you have already put on Christ. It has already happened. You have been given the gleaming white robe of righteousness gratis, free. It's a gift. You have been incorporated into the living Christ, and you are being fashioned into the temple of his dwelling, the God of the whole universe. You have been given the wedding gown that is required for admittance into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And therefore, as N.T. Wright says, paraphrasing Paul in Romans chapter 6, you must therefore draw the proper conclusions. You too have died and been raised. You too must calculate yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in the Messiah, Jesus. You must work out the fact that you have been brought out of slavery and stand now as free people on the way to your inheritance. If you have been baptized into Christ and his church, you have been given that freedom. That inheritance is yours. Walk in it. Examine yourself to see that you truly are walking and rooted in Christ, and then take heart. For God sits close to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He fills the hungry with good things. He exalts the lowly. For he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to Abraham and our fathers forever. So put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. For the day is nearly over, or the night is nearly over, rather, and the day is almost here. So come, let us walk in the light of the Lord.